giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Sarah Cooper, writer, comedian, speaker, and author of the best-selling book, 100 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. Great to be here. Sarah, I have a confession to make. Okay. <laughs> this entire thing to get you on the show was just an elaborate ruse to trick you into becoming the design director of our New York City studio, which we have an opening for now. Mm-hmm. So, awesome. I'll take it. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll, I'll do it for like three months. I won't get anything done, but then I'll, uh, I'll find someone else for you. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just go to meetings and look really smart. And... Well, th- that's the thing is I know you'll perform well in meetings. Yeah, I will. And really, in business, is there anything else that really matters? Not really. I mean, if you want to be a VP, you just have to look smart in meetings. That's pretty much all you have to do. So for those who don't know, the reason why I say that is because you, before you were a writer, comedian, speaker, and author of a best-selling book, you were a UX lead and manager at Google and Yahoo. (laughs) That is my history. That is true. You saw my LinkedIn. I saw your LinkedIn. Yeah. And you'll be able to tell because you, you'll look at your LinkedIn and you'll see Chad Pytel was looking at your profile. <laughs> Stalker. So what are you working on right now? Well, right now I'm focusing on stand-up. So I'm doing a lot of performances. I'm doing a lot of speaking engagements. Writing the last book took a lot of time. So I've kind of gotten out of blogging and kind of writing on a more regular schedule, uh, which I'm hoping to get back to eventually. But right now it's more uh, live performances and writing material and things like that. So you you started the CooperReview.com in 2014, right? Mm-hmm. What was the progression? Did you go to it full time then? No, I wrote 10 Tricks to Appear Smart in Meetings, which I didn't expect to go as crazy viral as it did. I just put it together and put it up on Medium, and it got a lot of attention really quickly. It had a few hundred thousand views within a few days and like a million views in a week, and it was just getting all kinds of attention, and I didn't even have a blog at that point. And I was getting so much attention and so many views. I was like, wow, wouldn't it be great if these views were coming to a website that I owned? So that's when I decided to start the Cooper Review. And it was really based on the success of that. And that was really the first time that I combined my love of humor and comedy with the hell of being in meetings and which is a world that I just knew really well from being in the tech world for a really long time. So being in the tech world for a while, like, were you also doing any comedy or writing while you were a working designer? Yeah, I performed comedy before and after I joined Google and I would have my coworkers come to my shows. A lot of the shows I did were called bringer shows, which means you have to bring a certain number of people in order to get to perform. And a lot of times it's really hard for comedians to get stage time because it it actually costs you money to have stage time. But <laughs> by the way, Google I forgot pilots. to mention this is a bringer podcast. Um. <laughs> I'll make sure to have my mom listen. <laughs> yeah. Um, but Googlers have money. So it worked out. They could come to my shows and um, they really supported me. And I was doing some online writing then a little bit here and there, but but nothing really that seriously. Um, but I kind of never stopped doing comedy while I was working at Google. A lot of your humor and like you said, one of the first things that got big was about the meetings. Does Google have like a meeting heavy culture? 
It does. I think when I became a manager, that was kind of hard because I'm used to designing all day and really being more creative. And, you know, it's kind of tough to be creative or feel like you're, you're creating things when you're just sort of strategizing and talking about things instead of actually doing them. And so that was, that created a bit of a turning point for me with my full-time job where I just didn't feel as engaged as I did before because I wasn't as hands-on as I was before. One of the things that we do at ThoughtBot is we try to have managers who are still able to spend a significant portion of their time actually doing design for a, a lot of the similar reason is that as designers and developers ourselves, we're really concerned about getting too far away from that and becoming unhappy in our work. So I'm not surprised that you, you feel that. But one of the things that I can't sort of get beyond in my own work is that there are times where a meeting is valuable or to have that time is valuable. Like those things still often need to happen. And realizing when you're like on the right path versus on the wrong path can sometimes like you don't realize until after the fact. Yeah, that's very true. It's tough because I think people want to avoid meetings uh, because a lot of times you feel like it's a waste of time, but then sometimes you end up wasting more time doing something that isn't quite right when it could have you know, been corrected if you just met with someone face to face. And I see that a lot in uh, startups where they're using Slack. They're using Slack. And that's basically just taking the place of face-to-face meetings. And I think that maybe that still works. But, you know, for me, a lot of times I needed I needed that face-to-face time. Uh, so the other thing that we, we also just tried to do is just be around each other. And that was kind of a struggle, too, because it was always like, well, all the designers need to be together because we need to be working with each other. But then each designer was working on a different product like Google Docs, Google Sheets or Google Slides. And we felt like we also needed to be around the engineers and the product managers who are working on those products as well. And so we kind of went back and forth with seating arrangements in terms of like sitting near other designers versus sitting near the other people that were on the product. But either way, it just, you know, we tried to make it, it was an open office. So we tried to make it like, okay, you know, if you just need to ask a question, just go ahead and and ask it and don't get stuck and don't wait for a meeting. If, you know, there's a check-in on Wednesday, don't wait till Wednesday to ask a question or, or try to just have a sync up with someone. So for your standup, is a lot of your material coming from office culture and business culture too? Yeah. I mean, a good portion of it is I write a lot about my um, experience in in the corporate world, and there's a lot of things to be made fun of in the tech world, and not a lot of people making fun of it. So I do enjoy making fun of that stuff, but I also have a bunch of other material that's more about my family and my life and more personal stuff that's that doesn't have to do with work mm-hmm. but i have you know a lot of stuff that i talk about with google and and working there and i met my husband there and so talking about dating at work and you know talking about what does it mean to be authentic at work and and things like that and so yeah there's just a lot of material there where like you know a lot of things just seemed kind of strange or forced, you know, like forced fun or forced, you know, like team building, like all that kind of stuff. When you take a step back from all of that, it just seems there's a lot of material there. So in your work now, are you working with other people? 
I am mostly working on my own. Yeah. Uh, stand up, stand up is pretty solitary. I mean, you meet other stand ups and you, you know, try to work with other people that are, are doing creative things. But a lot of the stuff that I do is pretty solitary, and that was kind of hard at first because I really enjoyed being around people. I, I always joke with my old coworkers that I wish I could still come into the office, but just <laughs> not actually do the work because I loved observing and I loved just being in that environment. And every Google office is just so nice and comfortable. And so I definitely miss that. And I, I work out of a co-working space sometimes. And sometimes I go to a coffee shop and that helps a little bit to just feel like I'm not just sitting in a room by myself all day, which is too hard. And what about collaborating with others uh, in terms of you do a lot of video, the drawings on your site? Are, are you doing all of that work or are you working with other people? I do all of that. I wanted to, thank you. I, I wanted to create a, um, I was really inspired by the oatmeal. Um, mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite online comics. And uh, so I wanted to create something like that, but I didn't know how to draw. And every time I tried to draw something, I just thought it was really ugly and, and didn't look very good. And so I ended up using this hack, which is basically I took stock photos and I traced them. And so that's how I do all of my drawings. And like for my book, I got my husband and a few friends to pretend like they were in meetings and do <laughs> these poses. And then I took pictures and then I traced those pictures. And that's how I created all of the drawings. And that also applies to the video. So you're doing the editing of the video and everything. Yeah, I, I do all that myself. Do you I, enjoy uh, it? I do. I mean, I'm kind of a perfectionist. So unfortunately, I don't do it as much as I want to do it. I have all of these ideas. But when it comes time to setting up the shot and framing it and getting it right, and then also like making sure I like my performance and my hair and my makeup and what I'm wearing and all of those different things and making all of those decisions, it gets pretty overwhelming. <laughs> and so I always you know, I'm trying to figure out a way to make things more easily and just, you know, they don't have to be as perfect as I, you know, I, I want them to be all the time because sometimes perfection just leads to you not ever making anything. One of the things I noticed in the videos is that you talk about hair and makeup, but like you change wardrobes within the video uh, yeah. many times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Are you doing all of that? Like, in a, well, maybe you don't want to reveal your secret sauce here, uh, but like, are you doing that in a single session or are you doing it across like y you're intentionally changing wardrobes and hair and makeup and everything for the video? Yeah, I intentionally do it. And it always happens that, you know, I say it's going to take an afternoon <laughs> and then I record something and I don't like it. So I re-record it the next day or, mm. you know, so everything just takes a lot longer, but yeah, I try to make it look like higher production value than, you know, it really, it really took to make it. And I would love to, you know, collaborate with some people on it. Cause it probably would make it a lot easier. I think that was the one thing about, you know, working at Google is like, you realize how much more you can get done when you have a team of people. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that would definitely be helpful. <laughs> <laughs> well, the results are great. And Thank funny, you. and funny too. And I'm not just saying that, although I probably <laughs> should just say that. Uh, but how are your videos disruptive? How are they disruptive? <laughs> well, you know, I think I'm innovating in a new space that's kind of untapped. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I'm just making stuff up at this Is point. It, are um, your videos 10x? My videos are definitely exponentially innovating. That's what I would call them. Mm -hmm. uh, no, no, not at all. <laughs> But isn't Apple doing video? 
Uh, now you're using like all of my tricks. <laughs> yes, I was wondering if you were going to catch on. I was trying to play along and then I was like, oh, I don't actually know what I should say to that. <laughs> so your next book, you said you've been working on that. So has it already gone to print? Yes, it's Congratulations. a pretty long, thank you. It's a pretty long process mm-hmm. from coming up with the idea to writing it, to editing, to sending off to the printers. Uh, it actually gets printed in China for the U.S. version. And so it takes four months to print. So, you know, it has to be done way, way, way before you actually get to see anything, which is such a weird difference from putting something online and blogging and just being able to throw something up there. And if it's not right, you take it down or you change something. So it's definitely my first book. I was super nervous about it. Everybody's like, oh, are you excited? I'm like, no, I'm terrified because if I see it and there's something wrong with it, there's nothing I can do about it. And so that's a a really scary thought. So yeah, this has been finished for a few months now, but just now starting to get to see proofs and, and, you know, first printings and things like that. That's exciting. So the book is How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings. Yes. And, and just reading that title has hurt my feelings, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> I have a lot of people are hurt by just the title. They haven't even read the book, but they are already hurt. And so I, I do apologize for that. <laughs> you don't need to apologize. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for apologizing. <laughs> That's one of the things in the book is that you always apologize for yes, apologizing. Yeah, exactly. That's very important. So what was the process for coming up with this idea and then making a book out of it? Was it based on some things you already had or did you set out saying, I'm going to make a new book? Yeah. So my literary agent that I got when I um, decided to write the first book decided to just go ahead and sell three books, (laughs) which I thought was, you know, at the time I was like, oh my God, this is great. I sold three books. But I feel like looking back, I was like, maybe I should have you know, written one book, seen how I felt about the process before signing a deal for like three books. So I knew that I had to write this book because it was part of the contract. And the initial idea was not this idea at all. It was more of a generic self-help kind of making fun of all of the ridiculous business books that try to teach you that there's a silver bullet to success and all of those things. And I just wasn't you know, I wasn't really feeling it. It just, I wasn't really excited about it. And when you write a book, you need to really be excited about what you're writing about because you have to talk about that book pretty much for the rest of your life and promote it and tell everybody that you wrote a book and blah, 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 blah. So I decided to change the concept and what ended up happening is pretty similar what happened with 100 Tricks to Appear Smart Meetings, which is I wrote a blog post that did really well and really resonated with people. And then I used that to create the concept for the book. So the blog post was nine non-threatening leadership strategies for women, which was another post that I put together that I really didn't know um, how people were going to receive it, but it took off pretty much in a similar way to uh, 10 Tricks to Appear Smart Meetings. People started talking about it and sharing it, and it started getting republished in lots of different places. And so that's a really good way to know if you have a viable idea for a book is is kind of an audience that is already excited about the topic. And so that's one of the chapters in the book is basically a printing of that blog post. And then, you know, it was a little bit tough because I, I knew that that blog post did well, but at the same time, I wasn't sure if an entire book 
that talked about, you know, women's experience in business would be too cynical, would be Mm -hmm. too depressing. You know, I get a lot of people saying, you know, your stuff makes me laugh, but it also makes me really angry. It also makes me cry. It also makes me want to throw things across the room. And definitely had that response to the non-threatening leadership strategies. Some people didn't get the joke and didn't realize it was a joke. And and that's funny. I like when people don't realize it's a joke when it's so obvious to me that it's a joke. But some people even knew that it was a joke and thought it was irresponsible because people, you know, other people might see it and think that this is really how women should act in the office place. And so it took a while for me to say, you know, I think I can do this in a way that's funny, but also, um, sort of respectful of, you know, what women do experience in the workplace. And I did that kind of by really just being as tongue in cheek as possible about, you know, the ways in which how women are perceived in the office place, how we change, how we talk, you know, how Mm -hmm. we sometimes even do it to ourselves. And I kind of bookended it with, you know, an introduction that was, you know, really pretty tongue in cheek. And then a conclusion that kind of like is a little bit more honest and a little bit more closer to my true feelings, which are that, you know, Hey, maybe some men's feelings are going to be hurt. Hey, maybe some women's feelings are going to be hurt, but you can't really worry about that. That's really not your problem. And so the whole book is really observational. It's, you know, self-observational and things I've seen other people do. And I'm hoping that you know, people will read it and relate to it and kind of think of, you know, times when they might have done things like that. And I don't like to be preachy. I don't like to say, hey, this is what you should do. But what I do like doing is kind of pointing out the truth of situations. And then I find that by pointing things out, people say, oh, I do that. And I wish I didn't do that. So I think I'm going to stop doing that. And that's fine. And, and, And people can get that out of it, or they can just laugh at it. And so that's kind of how the book came to be. For many people, I think humor is a great way to talk about a fairly serious topic. That's why things like even, you know, death is often a source of comedy for a lot of people, like awkward things are a way to to get humor. But also as a manager and someone who's done like training on these kinds of topics, like corporate training can be pretty boring or they're not actually that far away from like the training videos you might see aren't actually that different from some of the videos that you produce in a lot of ways in terms of the actual content. Like the real life is often funny in a sort of make you want to cry kind of way. Exactly. So I think you're, you're especially with the topic you're tapping into that now. Yeah. And that's uh, what I talk about too, is a lot of times people think they need to be really clever in in order to be funny or say something that's surprising or take a left turn and say something that's shocking. Like my husband is super into shock value humor, but the funniest things to me have always just been things that are just true. And you just know that, you know, you've had that thought before and maybe you haven't actually said it out loud. And it's just kind of cathartic to have someone else say what everyone is thinking. So how much do you feed upon or take into account sort of your audience feedback and how they respond? And is that different between your writing and and stand-up? Well, I take into account audience feedback online a lot. And like I said, part of the reason I wrote this book is because so many people identified with that post. And, you know, I've had to learn to get through the the negative feedback, (laughs) you know, because a lot of times if 
people really love something, then there's people that really hate it as well. And so sometimes, you know, you have to accept the fact that in order to have something that's successful, there are people that are going to want to just put it down and say that it's, you know, it sucks. And you got to kind of have a thick skin when it comes to that. And I don't really have a thick skin, but I've, I've got my skin has gotten thicker over time. And then with stand up, it's so much about the audience, but it's just so much more present because you know, as soon as you finish your sentence, whether or not it worked or not, I will try a joke maybe three times. If it doesn't work on the third time, I will never say that joke again. (laughs) And so that's just that joke's lifespan, you know, and there's certain things that I say that always get a laugh no matter what I do. And I've been telling some of those jokes for years because I know that they always um, get a laugh. So it's interesting because as an artist, you know, someone who's creating something and, and, and speaking through their art, you want to be able to do what you want to do, regardless of what the audience says. And I wish I was more like that. And maybe eventually I'll be more like that and, and kind of create things and not really care what people think. But I'm still at the point where I do want to make things that make people laugh. And that is the point and goal of, of what I'm doing. In addition to telling my story and being honest, I do want that reaction. At this point, having done a variety of different art, is there something that you enjoy doing more? Do you enjoy writing more? Do you enjoy stand up more? Well, I'm addicted to Twitter. Um, okay, so Twitter. I, I, for, I didn't put that on the list, but yeah. <laughs> for whatever reason, like I think in tweets and I just, I love wordplay and I love ironic statements and mm-hmm. kind of things that kind of take a twist and things like that. So I think in my heart, I'm I'm truly a writer. But when I create things like the videos or the illustrations, I I think I'm kind of just heightening and taking further what started out as a sentence or something that I wrote in a Google Doc. And so I think I'll always be a writer and that'll always be like the, the core of what I'm doing. But I do like to take it in different directions. And like last summer, I created a, a web series based on you know my time in San Francisco and um that, you know, the first episode just started out as this observation from like Gary Vaynerchuk about how he's always talking about crushing it, you know, <laughs> killing it and all those things. And so that turned into a sketch where, you know, I meet someone new and I try to ask him what he does. And literally all he can come up with is that he's crushing it or he's killing it or he's murdering it or whatever. And so I think that for ideas that start as, you know, as written, they can kind of go in so many different directions. And so um, I kind of like taking them wherever they sort of lead. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Google Docs, which is what you used to work on. Yeah. How has the product changed since you worked on it? I I don't think it's changed that much. Mm -hmm. A few icons have been updated. Um, I'm sure they've added a bunch of features, but... I think the thing that I noticed was we agonized over so many decisions while we were working on the product, like, you know, in Google Drive versus Google Docs. And, you know, when I was there, it was just all Drive. And then they separated them out into the the different products and how people would understand those products, how people understood, like going from Microsoft Word to Docs and converting things. And we, you know, looking back, it feels like we overthought everything because yeah. now as a user, like everything is fine. Like everything mm-hmm. just works for me and it all makes sense. And when I, when I watch other people use it, you know, other comedians use it or producers or whoever, like, it's weird, because they're just not thinking about what's going on in the background. And they really don't 
there's so much that the user doesn't need to know that we thought that they did need to know. And mm-hmm. it's great. I, I tell my old coworkers, like as a user, I'm like, this is great. It works. It works great. And like, you know, that little thing that we made sure was just exactly right. I didn't even notice it as a user or whatever. So, yeah. yeah. That in and of itself, though, is good design, right? When something seems simple or because you put so much effort into it that you made it simple. Sometimes we're working with clients and they're they're like, this is too simple. And we're like, thank you. We've done our job. (laughs) Like, that's exactly what we were trying to do. That's so true. It's like good editing in a movie. You're not supposed to notice it, but it does take a lot of work to make it so that it's not noticeable and doesn't interfere. Yeah. So how does that apply to things like stand up? Well, you know, as I watch stand up so much and a lot of time, I I don't know if if people notice certain things like transitions between jokes, a good comedian will make it seem like they're just telling one long story, even though probably many of those jokes and those pieces were worked on at different points in their lives. You know, some jokes are two months old, some jokes are two years old, but they've put it together in a way that you feel like you're just going on a journey with them. And as a standup, I can kind of see that tape. I can see the way that they've stitched those things together and kind of put in one sentence that made it, you know, relate to things that probably weren't related before in previous sets or previous performances. And so I think that that's kind of the cool thing about really great standup is that you don't see the seams and you don't see like, you know, you can tell a seasoned comedian from like a new comedian mm-hmm. when you can see set up punchline. Okay. And now <laughs> set up punchline. Okay. And now set up punchline. Whereas like, you know, a good comedian might have a, like one setup. And then five punchlines after that, and then maybe another little setup and then a call back to a previous setup. And, you know, it's just it's just more it just feels more cohesive. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that, you you know, you'll give jokes multiple times and if they're not uh, working, you'll stop doing them. But within the context of your set and the individual jokes and the individual words and the individual lines, how much are you iterating? I iterate a lot with word choice and, you know, putting things uh, in certain orders. Sometimes I'll tell a joke and it really works and then I'll tell it again and it didn't work. And then I'll look back at how I told it before, like listen to the audio or watch the video. And then I realize, oh, I changed something that, it, that I shouldn't have changed. Mm-hmm. Do you record all of your shows? Yeah, I try to. I mean, mm-hmm. that's really the only way you're going to get better. And it is excruciating. I mean, I <laughs> fear listening to myself more than I fear getting on stage. Uh, getting on stage is way easier than like sitting down and actually playing back your own voice or your own video. But that's the only way to get better. I mean, it, you know, I've been doing stand up now for like almost eight years. And I just realized like six months ago that I was holding my mic in front of my face. Um, and it took me that long to realize it, you know, and that's when I started to kind of look at, oh, wait, I'm hold like I have all this tension in my shoulders and, you know, the things that just make a person seem comfortable on stage were things that I wasn't really paying attention to because like, like I said, I'm more of a writer. And so it was much more about like getting the words exactly right. And, and yet so much of standup comedy is the performance and the presence that you have on stage. And so that's something that I've just started now, like really, really trying to focus on. How often are you performing? Um, I perform like three, four five times a week. Um, wow. That's a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's like actual work. Yeah. You know, it takes time and, um, 
but it's one of those things that really pays off. You know, mm-hmm. if you really, really work hard on something, and you really think about the best way to present it and you put two ideas together that don't seem like they go together. And, you know, it's just so much fun. And it's it's so much it's so rewarding, even though it like can be very nerve wracking. Are you mostly performing in New York? Yeah. So I just moved back to New York about a month ago. So, yeah, I'm doing most of my shows here now. Is there a place where people who are in New York or visiting and they want to check out a show where they can find out where you're you're next performing? Yeah, you can go to sarahcpr.com, S-A-R-A-H-C-P-R. And the CPR is not because I know CPR. It's a shortening of Cooper. So yeah, sarahcpr.com. Why two websites? So the Cooper Review started out as just the blog that I wanted to do, mainly like illustrated posts and things like that. And... I realized a few years ago that I kind of have this other side of me that's not really a side of me. It's just more me than it is the CooperReview.com. So I kind of purposefully made the Cooper Review a little bit vague. It has my name in it, but, you know, it, it could be me. You know, I have some contributors writing on it as well. So it's kind of like a cool destination for um, satire and humor. But I wanted to create more of a brand for myself and do more speaking and do more um, kind of live performances. And so that's why I created the site that's therapcpr.com. That's just more about who I am. And, you know, you can find out more about me. And so that's kind of what happened is that first it was the cooperreview.com, which I still do. And then I created sarahcpr.com to kind of um, further my brand as just Sarah Cooper. Yeah. It reminds me a little bit of sort of like McSweeney's where it's, it's this thing that, that is there and you can sort of say it's like a business website, but it's it's not really. It's a satirical yeah. business website. Maybe somebody will buy it from me for a million dollars one day. That would be great. <laughs> uh, I wish you the best with that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Where can people get the book, How to Be Successful Without Hurting Men's Feelings? It comes out October 30th, and uh, you can pre-order it now on Amazon or Barnes & Noble or Indiegogo or any of not Indiegogo, Indie Books. <laughs> Anywhere books are sold, you can go pre-order it. Cool. And we already covered the websites, but we didn't say your Twitter handle. Where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, it's Sarah CPR. So at Sarah CPR. And all of this stuff that we've talked about today will be linked in the show notes, which you can find in your podcast player or at giantrobots.fm. Sarah, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, let's build something great together.